be seated. Red-handed. I want to talk to you today about getting caught red-handed. It's all part of a series of messages from the book of John, written by the book of John, written by Jesus' best friend, his nearest and dearest, in which he walks this fine line of having deep reverence for Jesus and yet also cultivates a best friend kind of relationship. And so as we walk through the book of John, we're going to try and learn from John as he talks to us about these things. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of John, fourth gospel, fourth book of the New Testament, John chapter 7, beginning in verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. Twelve verses we'll look at today. And in this passage, before... um, Before we read the passage, there's a little inscription, a little footnote at the top of the passage I want to mention. The earliest and most reliable manuscripts and other ancient witnesses, that's extra biblical material, do not have John chapter 7 through 8, 11. And so let me just say a couple things about that before we get to the meat of the message. I think it's incredible and I think it's really great that when there's a question the Bible takes note of it. And that's because the Bible is a thoroughly honest book, full disclosure. And we see precious little of that in our world and in our culture. It doesn't try to clean things up historically. It doesn't ignore the head-scratching parts. So let me just make mention and note a couple of things to you about the Scriptures. The Bible, its origin is divine. It's not a word about God, it's the word of God. And it is a word from God. And it claims this in different places like 2 Timothy and 2 Peter. It says that it is inspired by God, that the human authors were carried along that way. And it also claims to be without error. And so we use the theological terms of inspiration and inerrancy to describe this. And there's been many, many books written about this. And they all would testify to the fact, these books, uh, that it's a standalone book. That there's no other book like it anywhere in the history of the world. Of course, it's the best-selling, the hardcover edition or whatever, the hard copy is the best-selling book of all time by far. Digitally, the U version has been, by way of example, downloaded 411 million times. It's a collection, actually, of 66 little books, 39 in the old, 27 in the new, written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different human authors from all walks of life, all different educational levels, from different parts of the world, all under the inspiration of the Scripture, all writing on one centralized theme, telling the story of God without contradiction. It's a standalone book in every sense. Now, when you consider ancient literature, we don't have the original manuscripts. They're actually called autographs of any ancient book. But the Bible is in a category all its own when we talk about historicity 
and accuracy. So let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about, and I could give you many. But one example, Plato. We've all heard of Plato. We all quote Plato, or maybe we've read Plato if we were in post-secondary education or whatever. We've all heard of him. For Plato's writings, there are 210 full or partial manuscripts written. The closest copy, because we don't have the original autographs, obviously, the closest copy uh, in terms of dating to the originals is 1,300 years after they were written. So people would copy the originals. The closest copies, 1,300-year gap. 210 full or partial manuscripts. The Bible, by comparison, if you just take the New Testament, there's 5,800 copies of full or partial manuscripts of the New Testament. 210 compared to 5,800. The earliest copy we have is dated around 125 to 130 AD, about 40 years after the New Testament was completed. The Bible is in a league in terms of historicity and accuracy completely on its own. There's more than 25,000 full or partial manuscripts of the entire 66 books. And so there's just a boatload, there's thousands and thousands of manuscripts. The earliest ones they take note of, the most reliable earliest ones, don't have these 12 verses. But let me make a couple of comments about that. There is no major doctrine that's being addressed and is in question in this passage. It does not contradict anything else in the Bible. It's entirely consistent with the overall message of the Scripture. And there would be general agreement that this is a faithful historical rendering of something that actually occurred. And this is why God put it into the canon of Scripture. And it's acknowledged by people that God did this. So I'm just going to say that up front before we begin looking into the text beginning in chapter 7, verse 53. Then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. So Jesus is at the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning, he makes the short walk over to the temple, and he begins to teach, and there's massive crowds of people. Don't know how many, but massive crowds of people. He was an outstanding teacher and preacher, unparalleled in history, before or after. He taught like nobody else. And so they came en masse to hear him as he was going to speak. And as he went to speak, he sat down, which was their teaching style. Right in the middle of his talk, the religious leaders drag a woman wearing probably not enough and drag her and put her right on whatever kind of stage or whatever they were using, and they interrupt him. And that would be just like right in the middle of church here with a much larger crowd than this, but right in the middle of church, as whoever it is is talking or teaching up here at the front, some religious leaders drag a woman in, drop her right on the platform and interrupt what's going on and saying, stop the band, stop the sermon, we caught this woman in adultery. 
Now, this is abuse of this woman. It's done for shock value to humiliate her and to try and humiliate and trap Jesus. It's a horrible thing. It's a mean-spirited thing by these people. It's an evil thing by these people. And as I read the text, I just would say to you, can you smell it? Because it smells like a setup to me. I don't know that for sure or not, but when I read it, it smells like a setup to me. When I think about the location, when I think about the timing, when I think about the public nature of it, it smells like a setup orchestrated by these guys who hated Jesus and wanted to kill him. My question as well that just jumps off the pages, where's the man in all this? Because the last time I checked, adultery is not a solo sport. It's a team sport. It's mixed doubles. So where is the man in all this? It seems very clear that adultery actually took place. And I, like I said, I don't know for sure, but I get the sense that this was orchestrated with a very distinct purpose in mind. Now, if you want to get into the story, I encourage you and I invite you to identify with the participants. So ask yourself this question. Am I like the woman? Guilty? Caught? Red-handed? I did it? Everybody knows? Whatever quote-unquote it is, whether it's adultery or whatever it is, caught red-handed, and there's no way out. Or am I like the man, guilty, again, of whatever it is, I've done it, I was involved in it, but on the surface, as far as other people are concerned, I don't seem to have been caught. Or I got away with it, I'm Teflon, nobody knows, or I escaped, or they just paid me off and let me go. Or am I like the religious leaders? Busy bodies, fault-finding, accusing, judging everyone else, gliding over my own faults, and gliding over my unconfessed sin. And I would suggest to you, based on human nature and based on my own life, depending on whatever it is, at one point or another, we have been all three. And we're all red-handed. Let's continue reading. Verse 5. So they say, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And in the law, they say, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin. Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. In the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament is called the Pentateuch, and these are the books of the law. And so I need to just explain to you and differentiate behind different 
between different kinds of law because what's being talked about by these guys is the civil law. The civil law which we all have is the grid work through which crimes are addressed in terms of sentencing and punishment. And civil law um, changes from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, from place to place in the world, and it evolves over time. So for example, um, we have different sentencing regimes between Canada and the United States. In both Canada and the United States, murder is wrong because that's a transgression of the moral law, the moral code, which in the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament is reaffirmed in the New Testament. And so that's an, that's an affront to the moral code. But the punishment in the U.S. and Canada, the civil code of how that is addressed in terms of sentencing ranges is different, and it evolves over time. In the Old Testament, in those first five books, adultery was punishable by death. In our culture, many people, not everyone, but many people tend uh, to not take adultery all that seriously. And just as an aside note, uh, let me say to you, look where that approach has gotten us in culture. No place good. A lot of wrecked lives, a lot of hurt people. God and his word, on the other hand, take it very seriously because God sees the havoc it creates, the people that are hurt, the children that are hurt, the families that get ripped apart, the detriment that it puts on society. And so it breaks the heart of God. Today, when someone comes in to see, comes in for counseling, and they say something like this, it's just an illustration. My spouse has committed adultery multiple times. Do I have grounds for divorce? It's a complicated question, but as pastors, we seek to deal with it biblically and pastorally and practically. In the Old Testament, there was no paperwork involved. It was very straightforward. So they are quoting to Jesus Old Testament civil law. Is she guilty of adultery? Technically, yes. And so they say to her, him, rather, now what do you say about that, Jesus? And they've said this, it says in verse 6, in order to trap him, in order to humiliate him, in order to be able to bring an accusation against him. They don't care about this woman at all. They don't care what her story is. She's just someone to be used and abused, and the man skates and we are not usually so blunt with God, but we try to test God too. And we may not say it out loud, but we're thinking this. If you're really God, you will do this, this, and this on my timeline. And if not, I will judge you and I will correct you. And these people, they think they have authority over Jesus. And like so many people in our world, they could not be more wrong. So Jesus, it says in verse 6, they throw this out. Uh, he bends over and he starts writing in the dirt with his finger. And we don't know what he wrote. But there's this huge crowd and this woman is standing right adjacent to him and the religious leaders are right there. It's up close and it's personal. And they keep pushing him, it says in verse 7. And so finally he stands up 
and he says to the religious leaders, if you're without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. Now I want you to notice with me what he doesn't say. He doesn't say nothing has happened. He doesn't minimize it because something serious, very serious, has happened. Instead he says, what are we going to do with what happened? What are we going to do with what's happened? And he just leaves us hanging in the air, and then he bends back down and starts writing in the sand. And I'm going to speculate for a second here. We're going to step away from the historical, factual text. We're going to step away from that, and I'm just going to guess. And this is all it is, is just a guess, because I don't know what he wrote, nobody does. I think that'd be a great question to ask Jesus when you get to heaven. I'm really curious, Jesus, what were you writing there? But he might, have, he might have written, this is just a guess, something like this, one of the Ten Commandments, which is, do not, part of the moral code, do not bear false witness. And if this was orchestrated by these guys, if this was manipulated in order to use and abuse her and humiliate Jesus, this is exactly what they're doing. But maybe he was writing one of the other Ten Commandments. I don't know. Maybe he wrote, do not commit adultery. And then he wrote the name of one of the religious leaders and his girlfriend's name beside it. I don't know. You see, when we commit sin and we're guilty and we're like the man and we think we've gotten away with it, because nobody saw, and nobody heard, and nobody knows, and I'm Teflon, we are kidding ourselves and lying to ourselves, because God sees everything. God knows everything. God knows what you're plotting to do right now. So, they heard what Jesus said, They saw what he wrote, and all of a sudden, they've all got something else to do. I think I left the water running at home. I better go. Or, you know, I was all ready to get into some really fun judging here and devastating of a couple lives, but I forgot I have another appointment I need to keep, so I'm going to leave. And it's interesting to me that all the old guys leave first. I think this is a because the older you get, the more sins you accumulate over a lifetime and you start to realize the real truth about yourself as you get older. So they leave first. But eventually everyone leaves. So here's the trap that they set. Adultery, as I said, was a capital crime. The execution took place by stoning. So you would take stones and you would pummel someone to death. So this is the Mosaic Civil Code. But at the same time, and operating in conjunction at the same time, was the Roman law. The Roman Empire had gone out and conquered many countries, many different people groups, many different nations, languages, and religious practices. And as an occupying army, one of their laws was you were not allowed to take to trial and then subsequently execute someone based on your particular religious laws. So here they come to Jesus in front of a huge crowd, and they hang him on two horns between two worlds. If you execute the woman, 
you'll be violating Roman law, and they will come for you, most likely arrest you and kill you, which is what we really want to have happen. We want you dead because we're threatened by you. If, on the other hand, you don't execute the woman, you are violating the laws of Moses, and so you are therefore not biblical, therefore you are discredited, and we will, you know, bring you out before the people that way. You know, how many times have you been in a situation like that, where on the surface it just seems like no matter what I do, I lose. If I do this, I lose, and if I do that, I lose. So what does Jesus do? Jesus who is fully God and fully man at the same time. As a man filled with the Holy Spirit, he speaks a word, a supernatural word of wisdom and navigates through the minefield like only a spirit-filled person can. Now let me just fill you on in a couple of things as well, which I think are very interesting. And uh, I won't say any more about this, but in Deuteronomy 17 and 19, it says this. When the civil law is being applied, they had various safeguards that were in place to govern these laws to lessen the likelihood of abuse of these things. So if a public charge like this took place, it had to be established by two or three witnesses. One witness was not enough. Secondly, if these witnesses came forward and testified against someone and it was shown that they were lying or someone had paid them off to lie about the accused, the people that lied and fabricated stuff received the punishment that the accused would have received. So for example, in this case, if it could be shown that the eyewitnesses were lying about the woman, they would be stoned to death instead of her. And finally, the eyewitnesses were called on to cast the first stone as the person was stoned to death. So they had these safeguards in place. The only one, based on Jesus' question, those of you without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. The only one qualified to do that without sin was Jesus. So what does he do? Last part of verse 9 through 11. All of them left until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her. He addresses her for the first time and he says, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Go now and leave your life of sin. So the woman is standing there. She's been publicly shamed. She's been abused. She's been mistreated by these, well, I won't say what they are, not very nice guys. And Jesus speaks to her for the first time. Where'd everybody go? Didn't anybody condemn you? And she says, no one, sir. And there's this heaviness in the moment. And, and there's a heaviness to our sin as well. Because some of you here have had this sin committed against you. And some of you here have committed this sin. And if not this one, something else. Or you're plotting something right now. So I want to just talk to those of us, which is all of us, by the way, that are red-handed, that this is how Jesus treats 
guilty sinners. First thing he does is he says, judge yourself before you judge others. So the religious leaders show up. They're all ready to just hammer this woman and abuse this woman and humiliate and accuse Jesus. And Jesus says, since you're in a judging mood, let's start with you. Because the religious leaders are saying, it's all about your sin, not my sin. It's all about your problem, not my problem. It's all about your faults, not my faults. And someone says to me, well, Dixon, I've never committed adultery. And I would say to you, that's great. I'm really glad to hear that. But understand that in another place of the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus extrapolates on this idea of adultery. And he says, there's adultery of the hands, in a sense, he says. And then there's adultery of the heart and the mind. And he really is saying in that passage, how many of us have had a thoroughly pure thought life? Nobody. It actually says in chapter 7 of John, verse 24, judge in the right way. And in Matthew chapter 5, it says when you go to judge someone, first of all, remove, ask God to remove the two-by-four from your eye before you address the splinter in their eye. And so it's a very helpful thing to pray, as it says in the Psalms, search my heart and see if there's any wicked way in me. Number two, when it's all said and done, this is about how Jesus deals with guilty sinners. When it's all said and done, it'll just going to be you and Jesus standing there. And so Satan and the demons and all your accusers are going to take their best shot. They're going to they're say, Scott, you did this and this and this and this and this. And then they're going to wander off and it's going to be just you and Jesus standing there. So I encourage you, pay attention to your relationship with him. Thirdly, Jesus does not punish us like we deserve because he was punished for us. So the woman didn't get what they wanted to give her. Instead, Jesus says, guess what? I'm going to go to the cross in your place. And I'm going to be punished in your place. And I'm going to die in your place and in all of your places as well. And there's no one in all the universe who saves and seeks and serves like Jesus. Fourthly, Jesus, uh, he forgives sin. We don't work, and, and I say this so often because it's true, every religion in the world, it's all about what you do and what you don't do. And it's diametrically the opposite in Christianity. We never work for our forgiveness, we work from our forgiveness. Very hard for us to understand that and get our head around it. We do not work for our forgiveness. There's nothing we can do for our forgiveness. We work from our forgiveness. So he looks at the woman and he doesn't say to her, you need to go and clean up your act and get things together and then come back and see me and we'll talk. No, Jesus starts with forgiveness. And he says, I'm going to offer you a forgiveness that will change you and then I will change your lifestyle. And some, I, I hear this a lot. I've probably said it a time or two myself too. I hear this a lot. I know Jesus forgives me, but I just can't forgive myself. And so, 
this is a bit of a tough one, but I'm just going to say it anyway. You know, on the surface, that sounds real humble. But it's really haughty, which is a fancy way of saying pride in the worst way. Because really what we're saying by that is we're saying, you know, Jesus, you went to the cross for me. You died and you were punished in my place. In light of that, you've judged me. And in light of that, you have forgiven me. But I know better. And I overturn your verdict, Jesus, because I have authority that you don't seem to have. That's really what we're saying. And so it's never about forgiving yourself. It's all about receiving what Jesus has done. And we very easily slip into that works-based approach. What can I do to earn my forgiveness? It's all about what Jesus has done and receiving it from him. Then Jesus lifts condemnation. You know, we know we're forgiven, but we still feel condemned and we feel, still feel shame. And in my experience, it's, it's particularly the case in the area of sexual sin. It's in other areas too, but it seems to particularly be in that area. And Jesus very directly addresses this in this text, as well as Paul does in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. He says, uh, uh, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus says, um, not only do I offer forgiveness to you, but I no longer condemn you. And I remove the shame from you. And so if we're feeling for condemnation and shame, this is a lie from the evil one. And the book of John actually says he's the father of lies. He's really good at it, better than anyone else. And so when Jesus forgives you, he removes condemnation and shame. And so I would argue that there are some here that should not leave this place till you pray. And maybe you'll want to come and pray with Ryan up here at the front or pray by yourself or pray with someone else in the crowd. And, and, and the prayers, the substance of the prayers is, God, I choose now in Jesus' name because of what he did for me on the cross to leave my condemnation behind. I choose because of Christ to leave my shame behind. I choose because of Christ to leave my burden behind. And I choose because of Christ to leave my lifestyle behind and go and sin no more. And sixthly, Jesus gives dignity. He treats her with dignity with honor and with respect. And I've read this passage many times in my life, but I learned something this week that I didn't know before. And to be honest with you, when I came across this, it brought tears to my eyes. And it may just again here in the next moment. When he stands up and addresses her for the first time and says, woman, he uses a very particular Greek word to address her. It's the same Greek word that he uses in John chapter 2 when he turns and he addresses his mom. It's not an accident. This is done very deliberately by Jesus. And it's a way of expressing the Greek phrase, the Greek word rather, is a way of expressing um, in, uh, 
total respect. It's entirely respectful. Let me put it that way. It's a way of showing respect to the person. And the fact that this is, like we were singing about this just before I got up to talk. This is the heart of Jesus when he thinks about hurt and devastated people. He loves them. He treats them with respect. He has the unique ability to fully address things truthfully and yet lovingly. He doesn't diminish the truth at all. He doesn't make it seem like it's okay. But he loves her and respects her and honors her. So he says, I'm going to address you the same way I address my mom. Lastly, and this one's going to be a little bit offensive, but it's absolutely true. In today's culture, many people, not everybody, many people would say something like this, woman, you got nothing to apologize for. That was between two consenting adults. Who are we to judge? Jesus tells her to go and sin no more. She was sinning, okay? She was sinning. What she was doing was wrong. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a biblical believer, he calls every one of us to a radically countercultural lifestyle to those that are his children. So people that are committing adultery that are his children or dating and sleeping together that are his children or living together or in a same-sex relationship, it's all pornea. This is the Greek word. It's all pornea. It's all sexual sin viewed equally by God. All sin in the eyes of God. And so Jesus says, go and pornea no more. And he's the one that created sex. It's a wonderful gift for him. And because he loves us, he says this is the way it's to be expressed exclusively in a covenantal, monogamous, heterosexual relationship, which is just a fancy way of saying uh, between a man and a woman, one man, one woman, in a covenant marriage relationship. Anything apart from that, anything at all, is pornea, is sin. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to live kingdom down, not culture up. Because culture up is sin, it's brokenness, it's condemnation. Kingdom down is forgiveness, it's mercy, it's no condemnation. And because of Christ, it's a clean conscience. And one day, just like the woman, you and I are going to stand. If you have a personal relationship with Christ, you're going to stand there and it's going to be just Jesus and you, nobody else. And he's going to look at you and he's going to say, I died for you. I don't condemn you. You're forgiven. I was punished for you. Welcome to your eternal destiny. Let's pray. And I...